Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, this is Marion Bartoli. I'm Mats Villander. This is Mary Carrillo. I'm Stan Wawrinka. I'm Leighton Hewitt. I'm Andy Murray. This is Yannick Noah, and you're listening to the Tennis Podcast. Hello, folks, and welcome to the Tennis Podcast. It is Monday, the 3rd of August, 2020, and there is tennis, actual tennis, um, not exhibition tennis, competitive tennis, featuring players we've heard of playing for ranking points and prize money. Um, we haven't seen any of it yet. <laughs> uh, it's just been <laughs> it's just been qualifying over the weekend, but uh, the Palermo WTA event does get underway. The main draw in earnest later on today. David, Matt, I give you tennis. You know, it's it has suddenly occurred to me that we were together when tennis was last a thing. You remember when we were watching <laughs> uh, Dubai? Was it when? Uh, yeah, Djokovic well, won Matt, the title. Matt and I watched um, Kim Clijsters' return in my lounge. Yeah, that feels like a different lifetime. And, and I think I was kind of at the last weekend of tennis which was the davis cup qualifying which then which was oh, yeah. now qualifying for an event which is taking place sort of 18 months <laughs> after they after they qualified for it um and it, the, even then there were it was kind of in the background there were rumbling signs of covid19 i think the airport i was at in hungary actually had a case and they shut the airport down and but then sort of 2 days later everything just shut down it's it's amazing how quickly it happened um but yeah just tennis tennis is back and it came back with in a very tennis way because i think the first day of qualifying in palermo ended at gone 2 a.m in the morning (laughs) Uh, (laughs) yeah it was kind of like oh we're doing this again are we given that there's no crowds to worry about and no corporate lunches to schedule around there is no excuse for that is there because you can start playing at 8 a.m and you can play on as you can play on as many courts as 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 you want or need to. I mean, how how <laughs> that is so tennis? Is it like comfortingly, reassuringly tennis? I think that, in a way it that is. It's all yeah. finishing, yeah. But also <laughs> stupid. <laughs> Catherine, um, uh, when, yes. when we 
stopped tennis and your well we we didn't stop it but yes <laughs> okay when you didn't go to the airport because indian wells was cancelled uh you had a fully packed suitcase which mm. stayed fully packed for some time what is mm. its status it's still on my bedroom floor <laughs> it hasn't been unpacked it has had items removed from it i would describe it now as half full uh, because, um, yeah, I've removed, you know, the odd pair of shorts. Um, only items, only items with an elasticated waist, obviously, because lockdown. Uh, but yes, all items with an elasticated waist have been removed from it. <laughs> and, uh, all items which, you know, you might have to wear a nice shoe with or some accessories, they remain in the suitcase, occupying most of my bedroom floor. I said, I said I would leave it there. Like Tracy Emin's unmade bed for the duration of tennis's absence, and I'm a woman of my word. That's five months. Yep. And there was no mouse. <laughs> no, no mouse. Do you remember I when mean, the mouse was, was a concern. I was remembering the mouse the other day and thinking, was that a dream? It was. That feels like a different lifetime. Matt, the uh, the mouse is in the suitcase. I no, I inspect that <laughs> regularly. Don't jo- don't joke about that because. That is that is those are the dark thoughts that cross my mind when I'm trying to get to sleep. <laughs> so yes, my suitcase remains uh, un unpacked. Um, I suppose now I should probably You've technically got to unpack it this afternoon before three p.m., which is when right. the main draw of Palermo starts in the UK. It's yeah. sort of part of the literally part of the furniture now. But yes, okay, I will I will consider that. Oh, we want a picture um, of it empty. Okay, I mean, that'll just be a picture of an empty suitcase, That's fine. but okay. It's a storyteller. <laughs> okay, sure. Empty suitcase with a, just a, a, a mouse corpse at the bottom of it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, the, uh, <laughs> it's the content that everyone's waiting for. You're welcome. Um, so in terms of tennis uh, news from this week, there's been no sort of big bombshell news. It, the, the, the deadline of the 31st of July had been put uh, on the US Open confirming um, once and for all whether or not it was going ahead. We haven't had that sort of concrete 100% confirmation uh from the US Open but from everything we're hearing as much as there's there's still a lot of concern around it a concern around it everything we're hearing suggests that with a heck of a lot of regulations in place and and details of those those rules and regulations have been leaking sporadically over the course of the last couple of weeks it will be going ahead yeah uh, I mean, it really seems to me that the only outstanding detail in terms of it being categoric is the quarantine situation on re-entering the EU. And I think, I mean, in some ways that is, I don't know whether that might even be made easier by the fact that it sounds like Madrid isn't going to happen anymore, in that there's the, there's not quite such a rush to get back to, to Europe in order to play the very next event. Kitchbill, though, David, Kitchbill. Uh, yeah, OK, Kitchbill. Well, that's during the US Open. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> at, the, at the same time, then, also, 
when it is a tournament and they've got to pave the way for a tournament, you can imagine that'll make the process of getting waivers easier in itself. So, but what is the next event going to be? It's very difficult to know. So that's the one area I think that there's been a little bit outstanding with. Chris Clary has been at the uh, the forefront of the reporting of this as as is pretty usual in these situations. Um, and he reported that they reaffirmed a couple of days ago that it was on track, as you said. And Chris Widmire of the USTA, their spokesperson, said the USTA have a controlled environment which will serve the purposes of quarantine for arriving into the bubble in New York that they're looking to create, and there won't need to be an additional one. Um, And also said that there had been further steps made. We are making a lot of progress with European countries and their respective ministries to ensure there will be no issues or problems for people people returning or traveling to Europe. So we'll see whether that actually comes to fruition or not, because as we've seen, Madrid, in one big decision by or recommendation by their authorities that the event in Madrid shouldn't go ahead, looks like it isn't going ahead. So it looks good for the US Open in terms of it going ahead, but I don't think we can count on anything until it actually starts. All of these uh, people that thought they were taking uh, roles in sports administration are ending up uh, doing sort of high-level diplomatic negotiation, political negotiations about quarantine periods. I mean, there must just be some uh, owed to be a fly on the wall in some of the the conversations and, and Zoom meetings that are that are going on. I yeah. mean, you know, back in the day, you were you were debating an order of play and now you're trying to put you know diplomatic style uh, regulations in place to allow uh, global travel to take place within a pandemic i mean it's just it's all very through the looking glass isn't it and there are question marks over really whether it's right to be getting those waivers for tennis to happen i mean we heard about a player in palermo got COVID-19 it's not been confirmed who that player was but I believe Victoria Tomova withdrew from the qualifying with cited as having an illness and she's from Bulgaria which was a country that they had to get a waiver for so that she could circumvent the Italian quarantining rules and it, it just makes you question whether it's even right that tennis players should be able to get these waivers as you said, during a global pandemic when, you know, those measures are in place for a reason. Yeah, if if, if you're somebody, <clears throat> I mean, obviously, imposing an extremely, uh, you know, well, an extreme example, but if you're somebody that is currently prevented from seeing a, a, a dear family member, perhaps one in a vulnerable or isolated situation due to, due to travel restrictions, and yet tennis players are, are having you know heaven and earth moved for them just to be able to play at a a, a, a in the in the scheme of things meaningless inconsequential ten of tennis event you know i can i can understand morally that doesn't feel quite right and yet and, and yet we are we are in a world of of gray aren't we and compromises and and we all desperately want want sport and tennis to come back um, as David alluded to earlier, the uh, Madrid Open, which was scheduled to take place uh, immediately after the US Open in that little mini 
clay swing building up to the French Open. It's scheduled to be Madrid, then Rome, then French Open uh, in the couple of weeks uh, after the US Open. Madrid's uh, staging looks extremely questionable um, at the moment. The Spain is experiencing um, possibly the beginnings of a, of a second wave, certainly an uptick in infection rates, as are a number of countries in Europe. And what's happened is the government in in Spain or in that region have advised that the tournament not go ahead. The statement that the Madrid Open have released says that they acknowledge that it looks unlikely, but ultimately Yontiriak, the tournament owner, will have the final say. But it's hard to imagine a scenario where Yontiriak says, ah, I don't care what the what the government have said, let's let's press on. Um, I mean, who who's going to show up in in that sort of scenario? And, and presumably, if the if the government have advised against the event, the government then aren't going to be particularly helpful in arranging those air bridges or or special uh, quarantine arrangements that need to be in place to enable enable players to get there. No, and they've also said in the statement that they released that their decision will be made in the next couple of days, which, again, it sounds like that they are going to make a decision early, quickly and decisively. Mm. Doesn't sound good, does it? No. No. The um, the US Open entry deadline for the singles, I believe, is today. Just opening this up to the player of probably most most interesting discussion about that US Open entry is probably Nadal. Do you think if... Madrid not happening does it make it any more likely that Nadal might play the US Open or I mean I I suppose it depends whether his reasons for not playing are tennis reasons or health reasons Um, yes I think if they're tennis reasons absolutely it does Um, if they're health reasons then there's no difference then 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 no um, plus ça change but um, yeah, I mean, Madrid had both Djokovic and Nadal had confirmed their intention to to play to play Madrid. Um, we suspect that Djokovic, um, certainly the most likely of the two to play the U.S. Open. I think all of us, if we had to guess, would probably guess that Nadal wouldn't play the U.S. Open. Interestingly enough, though, I think he's on the Western and Southern Open list. But it, but all, all ent, ent, entry lists at this stage are pretty meaningless, aren't they? Because all that is 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 giving you the option, basically, to. But isn't, to play. isn't the US Open that as well? I think ATP. Well, yes. I think ATP players are entered automatically, I believe, onto Masters onto the mandatory Masters One Thousand events. Mm. So all it means is that he hasn't yet confirmed that he's not playing. I think is was my understanding of that. I think Wawrinka and Monfils were both not on the Western and Southern Open entry list, so they've obviously signalled their intention not to go. Um, but maybe Nadal's just holding off on that decision. I'd be very surprised. I mean, having uh, we haven't seen any footage of Nadal playing on hard courts, whereas we have with Djokovic, um, and we've seen I, we've seen footage of him mostly sort of lounging on yachts, though. And he's played golf, hasn't he, this weekend? Yeah, yeah. He he made a right mess of things on the back nine <laughs> in uh, in the Balearic Golf Championships. He was playing. I I ended up following that quite closely. I'm not quite sure why, but I was quite intrigued. He eagled the tenth. 
and then uh, to to take the lead, and then had five bogeys on the on Ooh, the subsequent holes and lost his lead. It's that's not, a, not very Nadal. I'd call that is a it? choke. Mm. I'd call that a choke. Also, um, he's a right-handed golfer. He is, isn't he? Mm. Yeah. I mean, he's a right-handed everything aside from tennis player. Um, so Nadal golf news. That's what everyone <laughs> was tuning in for. Uh, just to wrap up, sort of other tournament news before we bring. We are going to be covering Nick Kyrgios, of course, uh, and and bring you up to date with actual tennis results and draws and so on uh, that have been happening. But um, in terms of other news, Rome has said that if it goes ahead, uh, it will be staged behind closed doors, which was. I mean, that announcement passed me by because I just assumed that it would be behind closed doors. But I understand that there there perhaps was an intention to have limited crowds as as the French Open are, are planning on. And in fact, those tickets have been sold by the French Open, haven't they? But Rome, should it go ahead, will be behind closed doors. And slightly old news now, but all tennis in China has been completely abandoned. Um, so hopes of... Staging, well, I mean, for, it's obviously devastating for the WTA in terms of the, the latter portion of their season. Um, Madrid now being in doubt, that means that, that all WTA uh, Premier Mandatory events probably won't happen in the year 2020 because, of course, Beijing is the final one. And, and of course, Shenzhen, WTA finals in Shenzhen uh, now has no hope of going ahead. Steve Simon um, told Chris Clary of the New York Times that it was highly unlikely uh, that another venue in another country would be found for that event. So tennis is back, but there's still plenty of grim news around. Don't worry. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, coming on to the big Nick Kyrgios announcement. Was it a big announcement? I suppose it's not as big as the announcement made by Ash Barty. Yeah, um, that's the A a Grand Slam champion and former world number one a couple of days before. She she confirmed that she wouldn't be uh, travelling to the US Open. Yeah, um, and and she said... For sure. uh, What was... uh, Her news wasn't surprising either. The fact that she's world number one makes it very significant that she's not going to be there. Plus the fact that she was very categoric that this wasn't about scheduling or logistics. This was about concerns over the virus, over the dangers, the risks of the virus to herself and her team. And she just wasn't comfortable, which, you know, is is a very, very valid concern for everybody still right now. And some people take that more seriously and other people not so much. But I think it was important that she was straightforward about that. And and I'm glad she was. Um, Kyrgios is not a surprise either. The reason it's notable is the manner in which he did it. Yeah, he did a video. (laughs) He did a video. Let's hear it. Dear tennis, let's take a breath here and remember what's important, which is health and safety as a community. We can rebuild our sport and the economy, but we can never recover lives lost. I've got no problem with the USTA putting on the US Open. And if players want to go, that's up to them. So long as everyone acts appropriately and acts safely. No one wants people to keep their jobs more than me. I'm speaking for the guy who works in the restaurant, the cleaners, the locker room attendants. These are the people that need their jobs back the most and fair play to them. But tennis players, you have to act in the interests of each other and work together. 
You can't be dancing on tables, money grabbing your way around Europe, or trying to make a quick buck hosting an exhibition. That's just so selfish. Think of the other people for once. That's what this virus is about. It doesn't care about your world ranking or how much money you have. Act responsibly. To those players that have been observing the rules and acting selflessly, I say good luck to you. Play at your own risk, and I have no problem with that. I will not be playing this year at the US Open. It hurts me at my core not to be out there competing in one of the sport's greatest arenas, Arthur Ashe Stadium. But I'm sitting out for the people, for my Aussies, for the hundreds and thousands of Americans who have lost their lives. For all of you, it's my decision, like it or not. And those are my reasons. Yours sincerely, Nick. So that video was posted on a um, the social media channels of a and on a website called the Uninterrupted. Um, look, completely respect his decision and the reasoning behind it. I think there's a, an awful lot of logic to to that reasoning, and I I respect the fact that he's kind of appreciating the bigger picture in terms of what's it what's at stake, jobs wise, etc. For for hosting the tournament, for me, that strays into. Uh, the sanctimonious in uh, in a way that I don't feel entirely comfortable with. He's sort of established or establishing himself as like the the morality police of tennis players tennis players during the pandemic. Which, although I agree with a lot of his assess- assessments uh, of some tennis player behaviour, it does it rankles a little bit for me. Yeah, he's 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 spent the last few weeks having these really slow arguments with people on Twitter because <laughs> of the time difference. You sort of he he will send out a tweet and then everyone's waiting for eight hours to see if someone responds. And then it's another eight hours to see if someone else responds. <laughs> and it's just I'm I'm getting a little bit tired of it. But at, at the same time, I think everything he's saying is kind of spot on. As you said, I like the way he. He framed that in terms of recognising the bigger picture, saying that mm. everyone's got their own decision to make and that decision needs to be respected. I can understand why some players have a problem with kind of being lectured by Nick Kyrgios, but no one no one yet has actually responded to the actual details of, of what Kyrgios has said because they can't really, because he's saying all the right things and he's making an awful lot of sense. Um I found it a bit weird, the whole dear tennis, yours sincerely thing. I mean, <laughs> is that how we speak now? Do we, you know, do I need to say dear yes, David, sorry, dear I, Catherine every time I, I speak? I, I don't know, it was I a bit made weird, an error but... when, when introducing the podcast. That was how, that was how I should have, uh, should have intro No, it's it. all right. We're not, we're not hosted on the uninterrupted, which is, uh, I think where you, probably where you have to do that stuff. Oh, <laughs> According okay. to the platform. Um, but, uh, no, I mean, I, I agree with you. I, I, I do feel that it doesn't matter. It's not important, but the the fact that it's coming from him, he better keep his he better keep himself out of trouble. Then, yeah, you know? mm. exactly. Um, because I, I I think that he's setting himself up a little bit there um, for for the future. Um, but at the same time, he makes some very valid points, and and I li- I like the fact that he's prepared to stand up and and not sugarcoat it really, and not be polite to these fellow players you don't get that very often he is telling these players what he thinks to the to to the in the rawest form possible um and it it's going to put some noses out of joints but thank goodness that we've got some straight talking 
Anyone else looking forward to the next time we see Zverev against Kyrgios on an actual professional tennis court? Very, Very much. much. <laughs> well, you know, that could be such a long time away. Um, it could be, couldn't it? Mm. You know? Don't. Uh, also, in, in Mel- Melbourne has just been locked down. Uh, stage four mm. lockdown they've just uh, undergone. Anybody out in Melbourne at the moment, we're thinking of you if you're uh, listening to us. It's it's an, it's a real setback, and um, there's there's going to be pretty strict measures for the next couple of months, by the sounds of things. And yeah, who knows what that'll do to to the Australian Open hopes? But that is at least six months away. Um, but yeah, it's t- tennis is returning, and yet at the same time avenues for its future are just disappearing all over the place so it's just it's cobbling together a future on uh, on the same day or possibly the next day after ash barty uh, announced that she wouldn't be playing the us open uh, we had naomi osaka saying that she did intend to play and they needed that didn't they the us open i'm sure that the timing of that announcement wasn't wasn't accidental or certainly wasn't 100 percent coincidental but it really felt like they they needed that boost and similarly um at a similar time that nick kyrgios was releasing that video on the uninterrupted um we had andy murray giving uh, some quotes signaling his very firm intention to play the us open should it go ahead he just said look i i don't have that many grand slams left in me certainly i've got no guarantees about how many grand slams I've got left in me where my body's feeling relatively okay. So I can't afford to let any, any pass me by, even if, even if they do come in highly bizarre circumstances. So, Mm. you know, that's, that's two former champions that committing to play, should it go ahead? And, and that, you know, I just, I feel for everyone at the USTA at the moment and, and that would have been such a, a welcome boost for them just to yeah just a bit of positivity to to grasp onto yeah look i think that there are going to be lots of players that will play there are going to be lots of players that pull out um this will be a way more extreme version of what we see every other grand slam in terms of injury withdrawals when sometimes you you don't have top players playing grand slam tournaments this is an extreme version of that there will be a lot more holes in the draw than normal but um there will be storylines. If this thing gets underway, there's going to be plenty to focus on. Now, there will be a lot of people out there, particularly fans of players that are not there, that are, that will say, this is an asterisk Grand Slam, it doesn't count, etc., etc. But personally, I just... I don't see it like that. I, I won't see it like that when it gets underway. I'm aware of the situation. But if you play a Grand Slam... The person who wins it, wins it. And you can go back in history and you could find all sorts of reasons why certain ones you may feel count less than others. But it says the same thing on the page at the end of the day. You could also make an argument if you know if you wanted to, to go down that road that it that it would count more, that it would be even more of a, a feat and a and a triumph of of will. Um, to to win this slam, to 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 take the risk of of going to play it, to to have committed to 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 training over the course of lockdown in a way that you probably have to have if you're if you're going to to win the U.S. Open. Yeah. You know, I, mean, there's... I, I, have, I have a lot of concerns and issues with this tournament going ahead in terms of feeling torn about it, but 
that element of it is not one of them. I'm, I'm perfectly happy to accept whatever results it throws up because if it's on, it's on. Right, tennis, actual tennis. We're going to wrap up um, the exhibition events that have uh, reached a conclusion over the course of the last weekend because the time for exhibition tennis, Matt, is over and we are making way for actual competitive proper tennis. It's not ultimate, uh, but it is tennis. Um, So in terms of exhibition events that finished up over this weekend, we had the Battle of the Brits being staged at the National Tennis Centre, that uh, second event being organised by Jamie Murray with the help of the LTA and uh, and Mary Greenham. Uh, We had the British Bulldogs winning that one with uh, Joe Salisbury and Harriet Dart clinching victory for the Bulldogs. They beat Jamie Murray and Heather Watson in a winner-take-all decider on a thrilling final day. Uh, We had Andy Murray uh, giving a speech at the sort of closing ceremony prize-giving type thing where he asked everyone to... To, to applaud his brother Jamie for, for staging the event and doing such a good job of it. And then he trolled him by saying, uh, shame he had such a stinker of a, <laughs> stinker of a match today, uh, which was uh, a lovely little moment. We also had a cardboard cutout of Joe Conta instead of the real human being. Uh, appearing at the uh, at the prize giving ceremony, there was a lot going on that I was mm. I was <laughs> trying to take in yesterday. Yeah. But all in all, a really really successful event. I think yeah. another really successful event by I mean, by Jamie was, Murray. It was basically a seven, six or seven day event, and it seemed to be played from dawn until dusk every single day. I mean, the energy being put out by the players playing the matches and the captains and the team members being on the sidelines was immense, really. And it was fantastic, I, I thought. I, I couldn't, I just couldn't find enough time to watch that much of it, to be honest with you. But at the end, I did manage to put aside two or three hours and properly watch those last couple of mixed doubles matches. And it just underlined their value and their appeal. And especially in a team environment where you have the players on the sidelines, there was loads of sledging going on. Joe Salisbury <laughs> described some of it as borderline. Um, and, and I mean, you know, one or two one or two of the lines I heard, I did think, crikey, that is a bit close to the bone. Um, but it was fun. It was funny. And it was certainly entertaining. And you could, well, it just makes a total mockery of the fact that tennis does not have a mixed team event mm. in on a global scale, one that really matters because we've now seen this event and we've seen World Team Tennis really appeal, really show what what the format can do for the sport and yet they're exhi- they feel like exhibitions to me anyway uh, as things stand. Yeah, I mean, full credit for putting on an event which was competitive, safe, giving players the opportunity to compete again and also I think just it strikes me that a lot of people got a lot of enjoyment out of this week um, in terms of watching it personally and I really don't want to come across as some kind of tennis grinch or something but (laughs) I mean again like David I had quite a busy week I didn't watch a lot of it but I think this time has made me reflect on what I like about tennis and why I follow tennis and I, I probably would have thought that it was the kind of aesthetic hitting of tennis balls that I liked about it but I've kind of realized that it's not that and I've really missed tournaments that I know 
and that sense of familiarity and that history that comes with tournaments that I know. And also I've missed stakes that are obvious. And I've just, you know, I'm very, very cautious about tennis returning and aware of all the dangers, but I'm just really looking forward to having tournaments that we know and i don't know it's just it's just made me realize what i value in in tennis as a sport i think um which is kind of why i didn't i didn't kind of make the time go out of my way to make the time to watch something like the battle of the mm. grids i'm very happy it happened but i don't know it's just i always feel that like like that about exhibition tennis to be honest the the tours for me are what makes this this sport so much fun to follow and watch yeah, I, I agree with you. I'm, 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 I'm pleased to see it. I'm pleased it went well. I watched bits of it. Um, I think there's absolutely a place for it. But for for me, a high level competitive sport is about stakes. Um, you know, it's why. So I love Lord of the Rings and not a fan of the Hobbit. Not enough jeopardy. Not enough on the line. Um, David is looking blank. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I'm so pleased it was a success. And I just certainly agree with David about it showing up. Um, the desperate need and requirement for an all singing, all dancing mixed event in tennis with sledging. <laughs> uh, you mentioned the you mentioned World Team Tennis, which also reached a thrilling conclusion uh, yesterday. It was won by... The New York somethings empire, something like that. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, <laughs> I mean they they had network TV coverage on CBS, but we didn't get it over here at all. No. So I was relying. The New on York a... Empire beat the Chicago Smash yeah. in the final. I was relying, and it could not a... have been a, a more um, a more thrilling ending. Could no, it? it was twenty points all or something, and then Coco Vandeweghe hit an outside edge of a line and fell to her knees. I mean, there was real emotion out there mm. and drama, um, but we couldn't see it over here unless you had some paid for subscription that I don't have, I must say. Um, so, but in America, it was on CBS TV. Um, so fantastic coverage for tennis on that in that platform. It, uh, it's just yeah. I would love to, and I suppose, you know, if you speak to anybody who's been involved in world team tennis over the last 30 odd years, trying to get it into the mainstream and be taken as part of the tennis fabric has been the goal. And of course, Chris Everett missed out a Roland Garros in order to play world team tennis back in the 70s. And this is the thing, it just makes you pull your hair out that tennis cannot figure out a way to put it all together and take the good bits and make it all relevant. Yeah, David said just before we started recording that he needed an extra 10 minutes. So I thought, right, OK, I'm just going to stick on some tennis highlights. And I actually watched the Hopman, the last Hopman Cup highlights of um, oh. of that mixed doubles. And I, I mean, that is kind of my go-to tennis highlights to watch if I just need a quick burst of, <laughs> of sort of tennis greatness because that was so, so good. And I know we've said this before, but how they got rid of that event makes no sense to me how they didn't even have a bigger event than that in the first place makes no sense to me so yeah i mean if anything's come from people watching these exhibitions like world team tennis and battle of the brits and realizing the the strength of these mixed events then hopefully it's that and um yeah here's to a here's to a tennis tour and sometime in the future where a big mixed team event is a focal point 
10 minutes to kill stick on some exhibition mix doubles from two years ago uh matt you are you are great can i I just say as well um nick curios talking about people putting on exhibitions and stuff and kind of making out their money grabbers i hope he i hope he wasn't aiming that at people like jamie murray who has actually put on a really really good event here with with the lta i think i know who he was aiming at i think we know who he was aiming at yeah no i'm I'm sure (laughs) I, i just I just want to point out. I mean, no, not, yeah, not a single positive test. Clearly, very well organised, and and from the world team tennis on the whole appears to have been very well organised as well. You know, the, these events did a good job. Is not a single positive test the new? N- not a single negative face. Not one positive <laughs> test is the new. Not one negative face. Uh, Matt. The Ultimate Tennis Showdown has reached its thrilling conclusion. I can tell you, because I know you're on the edge of the seat, that the Lion won. Who's that? Apparently, it's Alexander Zverev. Who knew? Yeah, right. That's his nickname. He's only been around for five years, kept that quiet. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I've got the the homepage of the website, up in front of me and it's got these like poster style graphics mocked up of a bunch of the players Uh, I I won't scroll through but there are four players appearing on my screen at the moment it's uh, Alexander Zverev the Lion uh, Felix Auger-Aliassime the Panther Richard Gasquet the Virtuoso and Grigor Dimitrov Grigor Grigor's had a bad history of nicknames. Do, do you think he refused a NAF nickname, in which case respect Grigor, or do you think they couldn't come up with one? They definitely could come up with one. Yeah, oh yeah. He Such had a, as? He had a selection to choose from. Anyone want to throw I one mean, in the ring? Even pre-UTS, he used to be known as Primetime and Showtime, didn't he, back Ooh. in the day? No, I think you have to be the something. Oh, it, ne- it sh- needs to be an, a noun. The show. No, no, no. I think it has to... Well, I was going to say an animal, but you've got the virtuoso. Dustin Brown is the artist. Uh, Alexei Popperin is the sniper, which, I mean, he's just glad to have a nickname, isn't he? Um, you've got Anastasia Pavlyuchenkova, who is the thunder. She also she won the women's event, the thunder I'm not sure I'd be delighted with that as a nickname. <laughs> Ons Jabur was the warrior. He really is the only one without a nickname, Grigor. Elise Corne, the volcano. Um, Brenda, hang on. Who knew there was a tennis player called Brenda? Brenda Fruvirtova, the prodigy. So much of a prodigy, never heard of her. Um, I, think, I think she's like about 12. Seriously, or oh, 12 sure. or 13, I think. Uh, Corentin Mute, the tornado. Um, Nicolas Maou, le mousquetaire. He's got to be pleased with that. He's done well there. Uh, Fernando Vadasco, El Fuego. Uh, but who's still listening to this, do you think? How many <laughs> listeners have we got? Uh, Benoit Pair, the rebel. And we're back at uh, Alexander's Vera of the Lion. So it really is just Grigor. Yeah. I think we better get on to James Blake. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's the thing. You said it was over. I thought it was over before, and then and then there was another one suddenly of the UTS. Yeah. So I'm. There's been a lot of wary. it. It's over. A lot of people enjoyed it. I'm happy for them. Fine. It is not ultimate. 
Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, Tennis Podcast listeners. David here. Now, you might know that I love a bit of cooking, and I think I'm quite good at it. But if I'm honest, even I get fed up trying to work out what to do every night. That's where Home Chef comes in. Being able to put together a delicious meal without the long prep and the cook times, well, that's pretty cool. Home Chef provides fresh ingredients and chef-designed recipes conveniently delivered to your doorstep to simplify your cooking experience. They have over 30 options a week and serve a variety of dietary needs, so you don't have to worry about what to make ahead of time. Not only is it convenient, but it's economical too. Home Chef customers save an average of $86 per month on groceries. Now, for a limited time, Home Chef is offering Tennis Podcast listeners 18 free meals plus free dessert for life and, of course, free shipping on your very first box. Go to homechef.com slash tennis. That's homechef.com slash tennis for 18 free meals and free dessert for life. You heard it right. Very quickly, Dave, we've got to just, just, uh, we, we, you're going to be hearing from James Blake shortly, who I've been chatting to. Um, he's obviously a former player, clearly, but a tournament director of, of Miami. Um, so kind of got a unique perspective, foot in both camps, player, tournament director, somebody with so much perspective, perspective that has kind of been a bit, bit missing on, on some sides when, when discussing the various ways forward for, for tennis in the coming weeks. So we'll be hearing from him shortly and it really is fascinating. But just just quickly to cover Palermo, we've had qual- qual- qualifying, excuse me, over the weekend. Um, we've got main draw getting underway today. Uh, the top seed is Petra Martic. Um, we've got players like uh, Maria Sakari, Donna Vekic in the draw, Marketa Von Drusheva, Sara Rani, uh, Serana Kostea, Daria Kazakina, uh, Christina Plushkova, um, Arantxa Rus, Laura Siegmund, uh, Diana Yastremska. Um, those are all on the order of play today. Just touching on Donna Vekic there, some quotes have emerged from her, uh, tweeted out um, by Reema Abalil, who, uh, who's covering the event remotely uh, in the National um she says uh, quote here they talk about us being in a bubble but it's not at all i don't want to pretend that i'm locked in the room the whole day when i'm not i went to dinner in the city i'm not locked in the room and 90% of players aren't now is that a failure of the the tournament to put in the right rules slash enforce the the right rules or is that a failure of of Donna Vekic to take it upon herself to act responsibly. Well, we discussed that in our question show 
last week, was it? I think where we said that. All right, Alexander Zverev. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just, I'm just saying that those two things are connected, and. Go back and listen to last week. <laughs> yeah, I think Mike Dixon, is, who is there covering the event, has has pointed out that this is not an event with huge amounts of resources, and it's it's difficult for them to enforce that. So you could ask whether the event should even be happening if they don't have the resources to to regulate that kind of thing. But at the same time, I don't understand that quote from Donna Vekic, casually saying, I went out for dinner, when that kind of behaviour could possibly jeopardise the tournament and also put health at risk. I, I don't understand where why kind of social and personal responsibility is lacking in all this. If, if you're going to an event, you should have the... I know it's difficult, but you should be prepared to do what is necessary and do what is right. And the sort of, yeah, the casual, the casual, oh, I did this and 90% of us are doing this. Well, don't do it. I, I, sp- I suppose the, di- this, the distinction that she is would be drawing as well is that there are very few cases in Palermo at the moment. Um but then there are very few cases yeah, all the, in New all the York. more reasons um, all the more reasons for people not to to come fly in from places where there mm, are cases mm. and 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 act with a lax lax attitude towards the whole situation um I, i'm not sure i'd be delighted with that if i were a resident of palermo um i'm sure she would make the argument that well i'm i'm following all the rules that have been placed upon me. I'm allowed to go out to dinner and I want to go out to dinner and that's what I'm going to do. But as you say, Matt, it's not that there's not a line in that way uh, in for, for, for me and for many of us between um, the tournament's responsibility and, and, and the player's personal responsibility. Um, yeah. I've just realised that we're going to have to make predictions, aren't we, this week in our, in our newsletter. Predictions are back, Right. You're being very annoying this week, Matt. <laughs> Quite right, Matt. I'm all, I'm with you. Can we do pole vaults as well? I did I did a poll about whether the US Open should go ahead in, in people's uh, no. view. Oh, for goodness sake. Goodness sake. No, we're going to hear from James Blake because he's got interesting things to say. 72%. Um, as I said, I had, a, I had a chat with him. I had a chat with him last week. Um, we we talked a lot about the, the Olympics. Um, he had a really interesting experience at the 2008 Beijing Olympics. You'll be hearing that. On our next but one Olympics relived podcast, they'll be running uh, late, pretty much daily, basically from later this week, because we've still got, I think, six more Olympics to cover, four, eight, twelve, six, four more Olympics to cover. Um, but I, I also took the opportunity, given that he is a tournament director and has that unique perspective, to get his view on on where tennis is at and on tennis's plans to to resume, and in particular. Uh, tennis's plans to resume stateside um and he was extremely frank about the situation he said he's really worried for the tours and for the usta it's difficult to to see a scenario where it where it really does go well for the u.s open i really hope it does but um I, i don't know i just i feel like there's so many things that can go wrong when you've got that many people um at one event and trying to put this on i uh, i know they're really really um 
bright and ambitious people uh, working at the USDA and working for the US Open. So if there is a way to do it, I'm hoping they've, they've figured out a way to, to make it possible uh, that tennis can start safely. And we're seeing it now with baseball starting. We're seeing basketball about to start here in the States. We've seen uh, European soccer going and uh, golf has been uh, going for a bit now. So hoping that tennis can start. I just think it's uh, it's going to be pretty difficult. And I, I hope they've, they've figured out a, a way to make it happen. Which aspects of it um, make you the most anxious? Is it kind of enforcing the regulations? Is it is it the lack of crowd? Is it, um, yeah, I mean, sort of anything sort of in between? Yeah, I think the, the lack of crowd will actually be, that to me will be interesting because it'll, it'll show a little bit uh, some of the mental strength of, of the players because you don't have the crowd noise, you don't have the support, you don't have, uh, that artificial motivation. You have to motivate yourself entirely and you have to be um, still focused, even though it's going to, it may feel sort of like a practice because there's no one there to watch. Um, no crowd to feed off when you hit a great shot. Um, and so that'll be interesting. I, I don't, I, I actually don't have a problem with that. I think that'll be as, as a, as a fan that can watch it on TV or, or maybe commentating on it. I think that'll be um, an interesting dynamic. Um, what I'm worried about the most probably is uh, the so the, the locker room situation because obviously every every player is going to have to go in and out of the locker room, and if there if there's one player that ends up having COVID, then it could we see how um, how contagious it is. It could infect uh, half the tournament, and that could be uh, that could be really dangerous, and that could look really uh, bad for the entire tour. And then, yeah, the, the quarantining aspect of it, the, how do you police that when you've got guys that might be staying with friends or in a house? And if they want to go out at night, are you, um, are you checking them every single morning when they come on site or what's going to happen? And, um, it's just so much with the unknown nature of this virus, since it's obviously new, there aren't a lot of long-term studies. So it, it's, um, it, it, that would make me pretty anxious if I was the one putting on the event. The um, the impression we get kind of from the outside is that there's a bit of a push and pull going on with the tournaments and the the tours um, and the governing bodies and and the players um, for for very understandable reasons. Does mm-hmm. does being a tournament director do, do you think that gives you a bit of a a different kind of almost unique perspective? I mean, there aren't that many tournament directors who have also been been pro players yeah i definitely think it gives me a a different perspective and i i have a feeling that's a a big part of the reason why they wanted to hire me at at the miami open and and have me in the position i'm in because i have that perspective and see i try to see both sides um now the further removed i am from being a player i still try to um think a lot of times like a player and if i was a player right now i know financially i'd be um, excited about the prospect of playing again, but uh, and when you're sort of in that bubble, I feel like you're, you're you feel like tennis is the most important. It's the it's what you're kind of going to sleep thinking about, waking up thinking about, and you're you're worried about for for your livelihood at that time. But now that I've sort of left that playing mode, and I realize there's the bigger picture out there, um, you have to start really focusing on the health 
and, and think about the safety and think about is um, is it more important to have this one or two or three events or is it more important to make sure that we don't take the unnecessary risk of putting people in jeopardy of, of getting this virus that we don't even really know the long-term effects of um, for certain. So I think um, as a tournament director, I'd be very, very nervous. Um, I actually think the players will be much less nervous than the organizers, than the, uh, than the people that are trying to, to make this happen more so because the people that are trying to make this happen, I think will feel the responsibility. I know that's the way I felt for Miami uh, when we, when we canceled and right before when we were actually really ramping up to try to make it happen, because that was right at the beginning of this, um, of this virus really um, taking shape in the States. And I just felt like the risk was so high in case something did happen that it would have made me pretty anxious the entire time if we had even tried to do it. So I I feel for the, the tournament directors, I think the players uh, will be excited to try to get back on the court. I think they've they've missed um, making money for one thing, but they've missed the competition. Um, I think you see that with athletes right when they retire. I think you see that with athletes when they're forced to take a break and they miss competing. Uh, the fact that you got used to that, most of them, if they're in the middle of their career, they've maybe been competing uh, at this level for five, six, seven years. And that's what they've known. That has become their life. So to have taken this break of uh, four, five, six months uh, without competing is uh, is not a, is not comfortable for any of them. How hard was that for you earlier this year? That whole process after Indian Wells got cancelled. At the time, it kind of felt like they'd gone quite early with that yeah. with that decision. Like the the dominoes kind of falling from that moment when when Indian Wells got cancelled. What was that process like for you as as tournament director of Miami? Yeah, I'd say that week from Sunday evening when Tommy Haas called me and told me they were they were cancelling until. Um, Friday morning when we officially canceled was um, extremely hectic. Um, my phone didn't stop basically for that five days. Um, and I, I really sort of implored the the team that I work with in, at Miami Open and Endeavor Sports, um, who owns the event, to make a decision quickly. Uh, I called them, uh, say, Monday morning at 9 a.m. and said, look, uh, Indian Wells canceled. I'm thinking as a player right now, I don't want to be in limbo. I, if I was a player, I wouldn't want to know. I wouldn't want to be unsure. Do I go to Miami? Are they going to have it? Is Indian Wells premature and now in Miami will still happen? Or should I go home? If I go home, will I not be able to come back to the States? Will there be quarantining things going on, um, protocols going on? So just being in limbo, I, I told them we don't want to do that. So very quickly, um, the decision was made to try, we were going to try to put it on unless, um, things changed. And of course that was the time when things were changing rapidly. So Monday, that's what we announced. We're going to try to make it happen. We start ramping up, getting, um, transportation going earlier, getting the hotels uh, that were going to be ready, getting more towels, more balls, more practice balls because players were going to be there early, getting tons of hand sanitizers and, and those stations trying, trying to be set up. Um, so we now are in um, really, really ramp up mode and we're extremely busy. Then I'm getting calls from every player, every coach saying, is this really going to happen? Are you guys going to have it? Should we get to Miami? What should we do? 
So my life was hectic for that week. And then each day something new would come out. Okay, the cases are increasing. Um, the cases are increasing in this area. We're seeing bigger pockets of increasing. And then the NBA happened. I think that was the big turning point. When the NBA shut down, I believe that was Wednesday night, um, when uh, one of the players for the Utah Jazz tested positive and they pulled the players off the court. And they at that point effectively canceled the rest of the NBA season um, at that time. So now we're canceling an entire sports league in the, in the United States. What, you know, are we going to follow suit? And then, so Thursday was kind of pins and needles because then are we going to do this? Are we really, that's when I got the serious anxiety of like, if we put this on, something could happen because this one player on the jazz um, contracted the virus. And then everyone in the arena basically was nervous about it. Every player was nervous. So Thursday, it was sort of, a weird feeling because we were all very nervous. And then I think we saw the writing on the wall come Thursday, Thursday afternoon, evening, as the day went on, we realized there's going to be no possible way. We're going to be able to put this on in a safe manner. And so Friday morning, uh, actually the mayor of Miami shut down all activity there and said any sort of gathering was not going to be possible. So it was completely out of our hands, but we were, I mean, at that point we knew that was, that was going to happen because it was just getting worse and worse throughout that whole week. And, once that happened, I believe it was 9 a.m. on Friday morning, my phone was quiet for quite a while, and that was nice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no one told you when you took the job you were going to be managing, you know, tennis in a, in a global <laughs> pandemic, right? No, no, definitely not. A really fascinating chat uh, with James Blake on, on a number of different topics. We're going to hear from him again in just a few minutes. But first, just want to get your reaction on what he had to say there and the kind of unique perspective that he has on it all because I was I was pretty taken aback by how frank Frankie was I, I you know I wasn't expecting him to 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 dodge any any questioning he's he's well known to be a really intelligent thoughtful guy and a good interviewee but nonetheless I was I was still yeah but pleasantly surprised by by the openness of some of what he had to say there at the same time as being alarmed by some of it because yeah. if somebody is yeah. is in the know is him and with with such an intimate and unique perspective on the situation is that concerned then then we probably all should be concerned yeah that, that's exactly what occurred to me is first of all what an impressive character he is and you'll hear more of that in the way he speaks uh, a little bit later on but yeah if if he's nervous i'm nervous because he has been at the sharp end of this okay on a a smaller scale with Miami, but still 64 players in both draws and all of that to try to sort out. And you're talking about trying to create a secure bubble. I mean, I think the USDA are doing all they can. And having seen the way the NBA have started, that's positive that they've created theirs at Disney World. But still, you know, I, I guess he's he's perhaps vocalizing some of the the inevitable fears that you have as a tournament director. You can you feel like you cannot go to sleep because at any time your phone could ring and somebody may have tested positive, and if so, what then? They will have a very uh, detailed plan for virtual various eventualities, but yeah, if if James is concerned, then there are reasons to be concerned. So. We're going to just have to wait and see. Yeah, he really transported us back into that hectic week as being Miami tournament director in 
early March. I remember at the time, Miami Twitter account putting out some statements that sort of one day after another seemed to con- kind of contradict each other, which I think listening to Blake there is just illustrative of how quickly the situation was changing, how uncertain it all was. And that's, that's I suppose, kind of the worry with the US Open as well in terms of... <laughs> whether the situation, you know, when they announce that they're on, if if they do, whether the situation from there could get more complicated and right up to the deadline of the tournament actually starting. Um, and I think he's right. I mean, the USTA deserves so much praise for trying to put this event on and getting the necessary, the necessary uh, measures in place so that it, it can hopefully run a safe event. But I must say I much prefer James Blake's tone there to the tone of the official launch of the US Open a month a month ago or so. I know they had a reason to be happy that the event was happening and trying to sell the event, but there didn't seem to be then much recognition of the dangers and it was all kind of happy, we'll, we'll do it, it'll be fine. I would much rather err on the side of caution and be open about the possibility of the dangers of it and the threats to the event. And yeah, I don't know. I just think his tone is, is the sort of tone I want to be hearing at the moment um, from, yeah. from people in those positions. Yeah. It conjured when he was describing that week in Miami, it conjured up this image in my mind of him, him and, uh, and the organizers trying to stage the event on, on quicksand doing everything they could. And, and, uh, you know, getting shipping in tons of hand sanitizer and prepping all the drivers and getting masks and everything, and the ground just seeping away beneath them as it was happening. And and I think we've all had that feeling in some sort of context over the course of the last five months, haven't we? Of everything just shifting in ways nobody could have predicted. You you you, sort of, you, you know you can predict uncertainty, but the exact nature of that uncertainty is in, impossible to to manage. So. Yeah, he's certainly uh, just such a worthwhile perspective to to hear from um, on so many different topics. I asked him, as I've asked uh, a number of players that we've spoken to recently, about w- what he's made of how how players have used their platforms during lockdown. Some players, in, in particular, Naomi Osaka, Coco Goff, because James Blake is somebody that's that's spoken out and, in fact, written a book about the the importance of or the need for athletes and people of a high profile to to use their platform um, to raise awareness of, of causes that they care about. I'm so encouraged. I think um, the, the world of the athlete has changed so much with social media, with the fact that um, Arthur Ashe may have needed to call a formal press conference or um, have a prepared statement after winning a huge match at a grand slam or something to, to reach even a small audience, uh, a, a group of people that may not care. And it may be out of the news cycle in a day, but for Coco Goff, for Naomi Osaka, for any athlete that's prominent right now with just, um, their phone, they can get out a message to millions of followers immediately on a Tuesday afternoon. It doesn't have to be after a game. It doesn't have to be after a match. It can be at any time, um, and they can reach millions of people and hopefully make a positive impact. And I'm so encouraged by this younger generation, whether it's the uh, millennials, the Gen Zers, whatever you want to, whatever they're actually officially called. But 
Um, I think with them having so much information at their fingertips, this is going to be the generation that has so much of an open mind that thinks so clearly that it's going to be progressive to making social justice change. Uh, because I think for generations, including my generation, the generations before me, it was very comfortable to just listen to your parents when it comes to um, anything in the news. It's your parents say this, and this is the way it is. And if your parents say, um, you know, you're going to be a Democrat, you're going to be a Democrat. If your parents say you're going to be a Republican, you're going to be a Republican. If your parents say um, something is just the way it is, then that's just the way it is and you can't change it. And you get those ideas that are just that just stay with you. Nowadays, people have so much information that, that young people, high school kids, middle school kids, have this information at hand. So when their parent just says something, they may not just take it at face value and say, well, that's the be-all, end-all truth. We're gonna, I'm going to look this up and find it out for myself. And I think that's changing minds and having that information at their fingertips. Um, I've got two kids, an, an eight-year-old and a six-year-old, and they're already at the point where they might not listen to me. They may question things on their own. And I, as a parent, it's frustrating, but I love it because they're going to make decisions on their own. They're not going to be clones of me and my wife. And um, I think um, going forward, that's going to lead to so many more open-minded individuals that are going to really, really change things for the better. They always say that the, um, the arc of uh, the, uh, the moral arc always bends toward, towards justice. Um, so I think it will get better and better. I think we're in a very tough time right now. I think we're seeing, a lot of scars being reopened and um, that's thanks to social media. That's thanks to video um, evidence. Uh, people, I think were, it was easy in, in generations past to bury your head in the sand and say, no, 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 that's not happening because I don't see it on my street or I don't see it right around me and my community. And now it's every time you turn on the TV, you can see it and you can't look away and say, this isn't happening. And so the the next thing you have to do is act and make uh, make sure when you do see it, you can do something to change um, the atrocities that are happening. How difficult is it and what does it take when you are a, a, a public figure, um, a well-known figure? And, you know, in the case of people like Osaka and Goff, I mean, I kind of hate this word, but a brand, somebody who lots of people and commercial entities have a stake in um, and and feel like they have their say in how difficult is it to to stand for something and to to stick your head above the parapet when there when I presume there are a lot of voices telling you not to and to take the the easy silent road. Yeah, it's, I'm sure it's extremely difficult for them. That's why I'm I'm proud for anyone taking a stand, um, taking a stand whichever side they're on. Um, you know, hopefully bending towards justice again, but, um, but taking a stand is not without risk. Um, Coco Goff has been incredibly poised. Naomi Osaka has been outspoken and poised and they're, um, they're great for doing it because you are taking a, a chance with sponsors and especially Coco Goff at such an early stage in her career. She's willing to take that risk. Um, we all saw what Colin Kaepernick risked and lost, um, in terms of him taking a stand. He's, uh, basically entirely lost his career, which would um, probably be in the tens to hundreds of millions of dollars um, for being an NFL quarterback. But um, history, I think, will look uh, favorably on anyone that does take a stand um, trying to promote justice and equality. Uh, so, uh, But I, I do agree that it's 
so many people now are focused on their brand. So I don't fault anyone for, um, for not taking a stand. I, I do think if it's something that you believe in, you have to be able to sleep at night. You have to be able to be okay with yourself. You have to be able to look yourself in the mirror. Um, and if you, and you can weigh the pros and cons, if you stay silent, um, you may be more marketable. You may be able to be seen by corporate America as very, uh, safe. And if that's what you, um, feel is more important then that's your prerogative. But, um, I think Coco Goff, Naomi Osaka and, and people taking a stand to, uh, to say the right thing, to do the right thing and to hopefully make a difference with their legions of fans. Um, that's admirable. And I've, I've met and spent a little bit of time with Coco Goff at a couple of exhibitions and seeing her at the open last year. And I can't be more impressed by, uh, someone at her age uh, and not just with her physical talent. Her physical talent is undeniable. Um, she's going to be a force on tour for many years, I think, but, um, the way she conducts herself is, way way beyond the years I, I was doing an event with her and um andy roddick and i were, were sitting at the same table for a press conference and both of us just looked at each other and laughed when she gave her first answer to a question and said what were we saying at 16 years old how would we have answered that question and we would have had i mean no idea and been such i mean we we're we we're so far we, we were practically neanderthals compared to to her at, at 16 years old so uh, we were just really impressed I, i'll speak for myself i, I couldn't have been more impressed by someone um, that, that really got it and got the big picture. And I think that's a huge credit to her parents for how they've raised her and, and kept her grounded as well as her realizing that she's, um, her words have, um, a greater effect than most other 16 year olds. How hard is it for, for any tennis player to, to grasp the big picture? Because kind of, as you described a bit earlier, it's, it's an incredibly selfish sport. You're in, you're in a, you're in a crazy bubble perspective isn't yep. necessarily something you associate with being a professional tennis player very true and it is difficult because I, I i mean i think back to to my life then my life now and how different um the sentiment was every day you're 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 right on that you're extremely selfish and i remember talking to some veterans when i was early on tour and they actually sort of lectured me on being more selfish <laughs> and how important it is during your career to be focused on what you need to do and you're uh the time you need to practice the time you need to be in the gym the time you need to be sleeping everything you need to be doing um because i feel like when i was young and just learning i was too amenable if someone wants to practice at this time oh sure i can do it then oh yeah that's fine and eventually they said no that's not what's best for you you need to do what's right for you and, and have other people work around your schedule including um your teams you know they you, you have to worry about you know thinking about what's best for you ends up in the long run being what's best for them because you perform at your, your highest level. And that was, um, that was a little uncomfortable for me, uh, to get used to, but then I did. And once I did, you realize, um, at the time you may not realize how selfish you're being or how much you're in this bubble. So I, I don't, again, I don't fault athletes for, especially tennis players for, for not speaking out if it's not something that's comfortable with them because they may have put all their energy and efforts into tennis and they may be so focused on that, that it's difficult, um, to really have an opinion, had to have a, an informed opinion about a lot of other things right now actually is a time when, uh, since they aren't having competitions, they may have the, the time to catch up and really learn and get themselves educated on topics that are important to them. 
Um, but sometimes during uh, events, during the, the crazy, hectic year, maybe they don't have time. So maybe they don't want to speak out because they're not well informed. And that I don't fault them for because I think it's I think it's more dangerous to, to speak out when you're not informed um, than to, to not speak out at all, because it, it can really backfire on you if you just say something that it's that you realize that if, if you get a little more information, you realize might not be the way you feel. And nowadays things are on record. You put something in a tweet, you put something on Instagram, you put something um, out in an interview and it can live forever on YouTube or on your social media. So I do think when people speak out, if they do, they need to be educated. And I think that it, that can be difficult for tennis players because yeah, like you said they're, they're isolated They're They can be selfish and they can be, um, completely feeling like that this world, this tennis world is so important and there's nothing outside of it. There isn't a bigger picture until you get outside of the, that bubble and you, you see the bigger picture and you realize how, uh, how important these real life, um, incidents, how important these real life issues are, uh, to the rest of society more so than backhands and forehands. Do you think tennis could perhaps do a better job of using its, elders for want of a be- for want of a better word it's kind of inspirational you know legacy figures i did an interview with uh, chrissy Everett a few weeks ago and she was talking about kind of the perspective that she would like to to give to some of the younger players and i sort of said oh well, you know have you ever have you ever called any of them to kind of say all this stuff and she said no but you know if they asked me then of of course i'd i'd love to give them some of my wisdom but, yeah. you know, she's kind of not called upon. And, you know, obviously you have Billie Jean King out there kind of fighting the the good fight that she does. But but I don't know. Do you feel like there's kind of an untapped well of of figures that could be better used? How much help did you get from, from kind of – because there were all those kind of Americans uh, when you were coming through, you know, your Sampras's and your Couriers and everything. How much how much of a help did, did you get from those guys coming up? Yeah, so I do think there is an untapped well, and I think part of it is because it's so difficult um, for tennis as a whole to be unified. I think there's so many different individuals, and there's so many different individual goals that it's tough to have one body. That's why it hasn't been there hasn't been um, sort of one unifying system or um, or a union or anything like that for tennis is because what is best for Roger and Rafa Novak may not be best for the 80th ranked player and may not be best for the doubles player and may not be best for the challenger player. And so all of them are having their own sort of struggles um, or hurdles to, to jump over throughout their day to day existence on tour. Um, so I think it's very difficult for, um, for someone to, to unify all those people and get them to say, Hey, here's what we're going to do. We're going to bring in, Chrissy Everett. We're going to bring in um, Todd Martin. We're going to bring in Andre Agassi. We're going to bring in someone that's going to speak to you, to all of you guys, and you're all going to listen and, and hear their wisdom. Because I think it's it's difficult to get those players organized to do that. So what happens is Billie Jean King is out there doing it herself. She's being proactive and going to other athletes and speaking to them and and being out in in public um, and uh, for myself, I've made it clear to any of the young Americans that. Uh, at the time of my life I'm in right now, I've got two young kids. I'm not going to be out traveling and, and doing a ton of stuff with, with players. But if they're willing to come here, I'm happy to help. I'm happy to be um, the, any small words words of wisdom I can give them, anything they can learn from my career that I can help them. 
Um, but you have to be sort of proactive. Otherwise, yeah, you're not going to, your phone isn't going to ring for, for a bunch of athletes to come and, and hear what you have to say. Um, even if you have the pedigree of Chris Everett, you've got that, um, you've got that kind of championship mentality. It's, um, it is, it is something that you don't, um, you don't get, you don't get called on unless you're doing it yourself. And as far as what I was helped, uh, you know, the, the, uh, veteran Americans were so great. Andre, Pete, uh, Todd Martin, Mal Washington, Jim Courier. Um, those guys were, were pretty amazing in, in my era of helping out myself, Andy, Marty, Robbie, um, Taylor Dent. We were all, um, learning sometimes just from seeing the way they're, um, they're competing, being around them. Um, for some of the big events. And then, you know, some of them went above and beyond. Uh, I'd say Andre, Todd, uh, Pete, for me, um, really went above and beyond to help and say, hey, listen, this is what you need to learn. This is how this is going to go. This is something that's important that helped me. Um, you know, Pete was someone that was, everyone thought of him as such an introvert, as someone that was um, extremely selfish uh, during his career. And I, I don't use that to say it's a derogatory thing. He was so good at compartmentalizing his career. And he helped me with that. He helped, you know, he, he also helped me with, uh, as I said, I take losses very hard. I used to be a perfectionist when it came to practice and I'd be upset after a bad practice. And Pete was unbelievable at having a bad practice and putting it behind him, um, just the next day. And I'll still always remember that the, he lost a, a heartbreaker match in, in Davis cup um, when we played in Houston against Spain. And the next day I was playing doubles and he was out there at the same time we were warming up um, for the doubles match. And I thought he'd be just gutted. Uh, um, and he was out there going through his normal routine, going through his warmups, going through his stretches, his, um, his exercises and stuff. And I, I just looked at him and, and he, you know, he said, well, I'm going to have to play tomorrow too. So I got to be ready. And he was, he had put that behind him and he kind of showed me how important it was to have a short memory for, for a champion like him, um, to be, um, prepared for those kind of situations. So as much as he wasn't as outspoken as a lot of others, he helped me in a lot of ways, um, throughout my career, just, um, leading by example and the times I'd practice with him and getting, uh, some of his, some of his mentality and, and picking his brain. And he was, as much as he wasn't the the most um, open, maybe sometimes with the media, he was open um, when it came to one on one conversations and in practices and stuff. What do you make of uh, the talk of a merger between the ATP and WTA? Both, I guess, there's kind of two things: there's the in principle, and there's in practice. So, in principle, I love it. Uh, in practice, I haven't digged it. I haven't dug into the details of. Um, how it could happen, but I love the idea of um, more collaboration um, between the tours, between the ITF, between the ATP, the WTA, because like I said, there's so many different um, opinions. There's so many different um, ways to view the success of the tours. There's so many different, um, there's just so many different agendas and to put them together. Um, I always felt like, um, you know, uh, a rising tide raises all ships. If you can increase the uh, um, visibility of tennis in general, you can increase the prize money in general. You can increase um, the exposure. You can increase um, the value of the product being tennis. Not necessarily saying the the like you were talking about earlier, the brands. Not just the brand of Coco Golf or the brand of Roger Federer or the brand of Novak Djokovic. Just the brand of tennis itself. You keep increasing that, 
and all of those stars will um, their visibility individually will be increased. And it's difficult, I think, for tennis players to think of uh, to think of a sport in a team aspect or in that very um, sort of macro, bigger picture aspect because they're so focused on their individual success and how this um, you know it, how is this going to affect me right now, next week, next year, and what's gonna you know what this is gonna do to me. And if there's gonna be a little bit of pain at the beginning, well, we have to you know have some growing pains and figure out how this is gonna work. A player that may have a career of just 10 years, um, which would be a great career on the ATP or WTA tour, you don't want to sacrifice a year at any point in that time to say, well, we're going to take a step back before we take steps forward because that's going to help the sport as a whole. Again, that that selfish mindset, um, which, again, is not supposed to be derogatory. It's what is almost necessary to be success at, the, at that level. Um, it makes it difficult to see further into the future and to see the, that bigger picture. So uh, I think that's why sometimes maybe in practice, it may be difficult, but in theory, um, I would love to see it because I'd love to see um, just the entire brand be better because you see as a, as a male player, you realize there's a slightly different dynamic when it comes to the slams, when it comes to Miami and Indian Wells and these combined events, you've got a bigger fan base. You've got, um, a fan base that may be more um, accustomed to WTA and they're seeing uh, ATP for uh, maybe the first or second or third time. And so they could be like new fans. And similarly, the other side, the ATP fans that are there for Rafa and Roger, but they're now seeing Azarenka and Serena and Coco Goff and, and some other players for the first time. Um, they can be new fans for the WTA as well. So if, you, if you're able to combine them, and get more and more of those combined events, I just think for the brand of tennis, it's going to be much better. Do you think men's tennis has perhaps needed to be a bit more embracing of that, the the, the strength of unity? Um, yeah. It, yeah, for sure. I, yeah. They, uh, I think there's, there's, again, there's too much resistance be, based on, is this going to take away from what I've done? And uh, that feeling of, well, um, we play three out of five. They only play two out of three. We should be, um, you know, we're more physical in, our, in some of our matches. Or any any sort of feeling of um, superiority needs to be checked at the door, uh, in my opinion. It needs to be um, that bigger picture of this is going to be good for the sport. Um, and... I do think that's difficult for a lot of the men's players because, uh, I mean, we've talked about, we've talked about the selfish attitude. It's just, you, you want what's best for you right now. And if you're thinking, um, in just sort of that laser focus, your blinders on tennis is still going in the right direction. The ATP is going great. Things are going well. We're selling out of, uh, out of stadiums. We're getting great sponsors. Let's just keep on this path instead of thinking, well, if we can, um, do something collaboratively with the WTA and um, unify, we can have the sport as a whole. And maybe that means if you're 20 in the world in, in the ATP and you feel like, well, now someone on the WTA is going to get that deal from this sponsor that's going to sponsor the whole sport instead of one that was going to be just on the ATP side, they might see the dynamic nature of uh, Garbine Muguruza and make her the same deal that I was going to get. So they, they may be afraid that some of the deals may be going away from them instead and going to some of the WTA players. But 
I just feel like it's such a it's such a short sighted attitude as opposed to thinking about the bigger picture. And it's, if they want to say that it's, it's easier for me to say right now, I completely agree. I completely agree. It's easier to say when I have no, um, no skin in the game right now, I'm not playing on tour. I'm not, I, I don't have those kind of, uh, those kind of, uh, issues to worry about right now in my life. But again, it's, it's once you stepped outside that bubble, that makes you see it from a different perspective. And that's why, I mean, that's part of the reason we all have coaches is you've got someone that's looking at you that um, can tell you from an outside perspective, exactly what's best for you. And so looking at it from sort of a coach's perspective or from someone that's on the outside looking in, I see that the bigger picture, it's better if there, if there's unity uh, and more and more unity, including uh, the ITF and the USTA and all the, the federations being more unified um, instead of it being the slams of the ITF and the tours or the ATP and the WTA, getting them all together and having one, um, one governing body, I think would be beneficial to the entire sport. Mm. Um, last question, uh, for you, James, just in terms of the, the whole perspective and, and, and big picture thing, you know, trying to think about maybe how tennis can emerge from this period better and, and, and stronger, um, I read a lot about the 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 difficult period that you went through in in two thousand four and in two thousand five. The the piece you wrote um, behind the racket at the end of last year, and I mean, obviously a, a a really awful, challenging period, but something that you managed to to get something positive out of it. Um, the opportunity to reflect, to to connect with people in your life, something that tennis players just don't get very often and you know for 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 all sorts of different reasons maybe maybe tennis and tennis players have had a little bit of a taste of that over the past past few months maybe and it could could lead to more perspective Uh, yeah i completely agree it's going to be i think that's one of the things that i'm most excited and interested about when the sport does return is how people have changed over this time um because i think it's going to be um fairly obvious uh after a few months once the the tour is back and running um who was extremely productive over this time and who wasn't and uh this is a time i've said to a few of the younger players uh, that i've spoken to just in passing um this is a time when if i was on tour i would think so much about how can i get better during this time what can i do uh is it physical that i can get physically that i can get better is it mentally that i can get better is it um uh, one specific stroke that i need to work on um a hole in my game that can get better um and then to have all this time where you're not traveling um you're not on the road is it a time where i need to focus so much on just being healthy on getting uh, my body ready for the the grind of the tour when it does come back um, and I think we'll see that people that are not taking this time seriously, that don't appreciate the fact that this is um, a, a time to be used still productively, um, they're going to have a tough time uh, dealing with the people that have used this time extremely productively. And that goes to the bigger picture um, off the court of um, what did you do with your time um, spent off the court because you, you're not traveling, you're not competing. So as much as you can practice, as much as you can get better physically, you've got a few more hours in the day. And you know, for some of the older players, that means you've got more time spending spent with your family, which will never be a regret for any of them. You get more time uh, to be with those you love and family. 
remember some of the younger players that maybe don't have family um, uh, yet, they don't have kids yet or something, they could use this time to educate themselves on um, social initiatives, on uh, on social justice, on, on reform, on, um, on really anything, or just, you know, uh, anything. You could take a class on art history and just learn about that, but using your time productively because you know that's something that isn't given to you um, throughout the rest of the, the year is when you're going to be on tour and you have to be so hyper-focused on your career. So um, it, it's going to be really interesting to see um, what was done with every player and how they've changed, hopefully, for the better um, during this time. And uh, for me, you talk about 2004 and getting perspective. Um, it was very eye-opening. As much as I thought I had perspective, when you come very close to having your entire career taken away, um, you really do gain greater perspective on how quickly things can go away. I mean, this is one that any athlete didn't think about. They think about injuries. They think about illnesses. They think about um, themselves getting injured and being taken out of the sport. They don't think of a global pandemic taking the entire sport down. So this is something that can be eye-opening for, for all of them. That Hey, if something like this can happen once, it could happen again. This could entirely shut things down. So when this does come back, let's appreciate every moment. And that doesn't mean stopping and smelling the roses every five minutes, but it does mean, you know, appreciating the fact that um, you get to go to work in a t-shirt and shorts. You, you love the life you live. You love the sport and you should be, um, you should be appreciative because it's finite and it could end at any moment. Yikes. Who's wearing a t-shirt and shorts right now? <laughs> Oh, actually, I am. I am, uh, and, uh, and I'm feeling. <laughs> I pretty, am too. <laughs> I'm feeling pretty good about life, to be honest. Um, isn't it impressive? In and just, mm. just isn't it refreshing to hear somebody speak the way he does and, and acknowledge and understand? First of all, the young players and um, and the good things that he's hearing. You know, he isn't just standing there as an ex-player trashing the players that that have followed him. He's he's so accepting and, and acknowledging of, of of the good things that he hears and sees but the the stuff he was saying about he as a male player and his fellow male players and their lack of acceptance and encouragement and and de- preparedness to try to work with the female tennis players and the women's tour in order to just make tennis better and I mean, why hasn't that been said more often by people in the past? I don't think I've ever heard. I mean, you, you hear it occasionally from Andy Murray, I would say, but that's about it. But he has gone in depth there and explained why, what a joke it is that that attitude of of us and what we do and, and me as opposed to what the sport could do if it was combined. It just makes It just makes a total joke of it to me. I think it's not said because it's not thought, though. I think a, a lot of there's a, there's an arrogance and a complacency about male players. They they don't believe they would be stronger combined. I mean, for, to me, it it's such a total no brainer, and it's heartening to hear the conviction in James Blake's voice um, along the same lines. But I I think it's not said because it's that it's not thought by all too many male players. Yeah, it's been one of the, as we talked about, one of the disappointments of the last eight eight to ten weeks or so that this talk of a merger that we're all so excited about has kind of just disappeared 
like the wind. It's just it's just gone and it makes you think maybe it was a flash in the pan. Maybe they didn't really mean it. Hopefully there's something going on behind the scenes. Um, but I think, you know, this is a this is a terrible name drop, but we asked Mary Carrillo over the weekend, when was the last when was the first time a male player who was active publicly supported the women and women's tennis? And Mary couldn't really think of it off the top of her head. And if Mary doesn't know, then it strikes me that it, it it's kind of it's been deeply embedded in tennis history really that yes there are men and women playing alongside each other but there's also you go back and read quotes and there's a there's a suspicion among the men that's deeply embedded in in the men's game and that almost seeing the women as a threat or as an inferior product and Blake's recognition that to be honest that still hasn't gone away and we need to do something about that is so refreshing that he put it in such clear-cut terms um, and that he's kind of actively trying to do something about it as well um yeah just just such an in such an impressive man and talker and thinker and someone that definitely tennis is is better off for having in a in a position of of power like mm. he is in I'd, I'd offer him the job of commissioner mm. um and we'll be hearing more from him later in the week on our beijing olympics relived pod we've got four more olympics relived pods coming to you daily later this week either starting tuesday or wednesday depending on david's parenting schedule uh, matt and i don't have such such concerns <laughs> but david very much does this yeah, podcast has been edited for cameos from david's children <laughs> yes they they like to come and say hello to Catherine and Matt and wave down the zoom lens um and, and, and it's and it's a two-way thing to be fair we oh yeah we very much enjoy their cameos <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, so it's not impossible that one of these days they may be very difficult to edit out of this show. But anyway, <laughs> we'll see if we can get through another 300 episodes before that happens. Um, uh, working from home, everyone. This is relatable content, isn't it? We've already had one massive row over a game of uh, rounders this morning as well. Over the David over has the... raised a very competitive child. Yes. Um, and I'm also a competitive child. So... Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah olympics relived coming to you either tuesday or wednesday uh for four four uh days consecutively la- later this week was that an eye roll matt no absolutely not <laughs> you glanced skyward don't see yourself in matt catherine he's, a, he's up for it <laughs> absolutely not i'm i'm offended <laughs> Okay, it was a completely innocent you've, you've glance. You've already called me annoying today. <laughs> Matt has taken some stick today. <laughs> I'm just giving D- David one, one podcast off per year. Yeah, Matt, this is, this is what it's like to be me, mate. All right? I have n- newfound respect, David. I, uh, I retract my eye-rolling comment. I am the owner of all eye-rolls on this podcast. Uh, so, yeah, we'll be back. More Olympics relived, starting with Athens 2004. I'm biased, but it's an absolute corker. We've spoken to the men's double gold medalist in singles and doubles, Nicholas Massou. We've also spoken to Marty Fish, the man he beat in the gold medal match. And that interview is yeah though i say so myself it is it's pretty jaw-dropping so um yeah join us for olympics relived later this week david matt thank you uh david off to do some parenting oh yeah 
Matt, what are you off to do? Uh, editing David's kids out of the podcast. <laughs> uh, great. <laughs> Both worthy pursuits. Uh, you go and do that and uh, we'll see you for Olympics Relived in a couple of days. 